Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, in the in the beginning, in the beginning, yeah, in the in in, uh, in the listen properly in in the beginning, yeah, in 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 the beginning, in the beginning, in in the in in the beginning. All right, and welcome back to another podcast of Challenging the Traditions of Men. And we are dealing with In the Beginning, as we uh, last episode moved into some new waters discussing Jeremiah and its familiar language to help us understand the context and what's going on in Genesis 1. Uh, I want to welcome the crew back. We got Steve back, we got Tom back, and we got Leith back. Uh, bringing a vast array of different perspectives and p positions based upon there. We're simply at different places in our lives and trying to bring all these things together. So I just want to say thank you for being here, guys, and hope you're ready for uh, some fun discussion. Yeah, thanks, Dallas. Good to be here, man. Good to see you guys again. Always ready. Yeah, it's good to good to be here, guys. Same here. All righty. So I'm going to, uh, before we move forward, because last time what we did was uh, crack open a lot of uh, scripture and a lot of context of things that I think a lot of people probably have never really gotten into in any kind of depth or even are familiar with in general. So what I would like to do is refresh just some of the hot scriptures we looked at as the goal of what we're trying to do is read Genesis 1 and understand this unfamiliar language when it reads. And I'll just read the text that we're going to be comparing again. is Genesis 1, uh, verse 2, where it says, And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. When we compared that to Jeremiah 4, we did find a lot of uh, language that gave context to that exact phrasing. So what we're going to do today is we're going to refresh a couple of those ideas. We're going to bring that context back into our minds. Then we're actually going to move into comparing it to another set of scripture to bring more detail and depth of our understanding to this topic. Because last time we were in Jeremiah, we found that this language is all surrounding judgment and judgment specifically coming upon a covenant people. So that's what uh, we're going to be discussing again today is the refreshment of that Jeremiah. And then we're going to start another comparison as the Jeremiah stuff was quite compelling. And when we compare both Genesis and Jeremiah to Genesis one, rather to this process of the judgment in Genesis six through nine with Noah, we're going to see a lot of really interesting overlaps. All right. So I hope you guys got your scriptures with you. We're going to go to Jeremiah chapter four. So we're going to take just a look at uh, small sections today. We just do three through seven. So we're going to give this a read. And it says, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins from your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So here we have uh, that introduction, the reminder of what's taking place, 
uh, judgment coming upon Israel, uh, Jerusalem specifically, Judah, where the temple and the covenant last uh, standing of the bloodline has solidified itself after the ten northern tribes have gone into exile. So when we're taking a look here, we take a look at verse um, 7, and it says, A lion has gone up from its thicket, and a destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins and without inhabitant. So this is the prophecy of the destruction against Jerusalem, against Judah. This is God coming to do this. We see interesting language being described here as we read about the destroyer of nations as being set out. So God is saying, I bring destruction, which is interesting also. And uh, we compare that to make your land a waste. Now, we've become more familiar with land and this uh, promise of the land. And we've heard all this stuff as the land promises of God because of the current affair and current situations in the world with what's going on over in Israel. Well, the land issues are very important. And here we see the land issues of Jeremiah being pointed out directly saying, uh, I'm going to make your land a waste. We also see your cities will be ruined. Well, this is an interesting thing because when you say your cities will be ruined, this is that reference to becoming unformed, to becoming the de detrod and broken down, which goes into that, I'm going to make your land a waste. Your cities will be downtrodden, destroyed, and taken out. It will be unformed. It will be without inhabitant. Well, that's no man. That's unfilled. That's void, which is interesting because when we take a look at Jeremiah 4 and chav uh, continue down to verse 23, we get, and I looked on the earth, and this is the results of this judgment, this disaster that was proclaimed upon them, when it says, and I looked upon the earth, and behold, it was formless and void. Well, this destruction that's coming upon them, well, this is a very uh, specific end result, because when we start hearing that, our brain should immediately bring up that picture of Genesis 1. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void as to the heavens. They had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. And I looked, and behold, there was no man. And I looked, and behold, the fruitful land had become a wilderness. The whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not execute a complete destruction. Verse 28, For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark, because I have spoken, and I have purposed it. I will not change my mind, nor will I turn from it. So in Jeremiah 4, we, uh, we've, we read all the way back from 2 up to 4 to get the full context, as God has given Israel and Judah both fair warning that their deeds have brought upon them the transgressions promised in the covenant agreement of Torah. And because they have broken those things and they have broken them to the degree that there will no longer be any type of restitution, a destroyer of nations is being set out to make their land a waste, to make them unformed and to make them unfilled, to make them void, to see their cities to be laid waste in ruin and to be a population free without inhabitant. 
So when we read that language, it should jump out at us very strong when we compare Jeremiah 4.23, because we do have the earth was formless and void as a result of this judgment. So when the judgment does come in against this apostate covenant people, Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem, the results of the judgment would that the earth, that land, would be formless and void. Well, that's exactly what we find in Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void. And then, according to Jeremiah, that the heavens would have no light. Well, that's exactly what we read. For the earth was formless and uh, void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. There was no sun, moon, or stars to shine light on the waters to give it light. There was no light anywhere. There was only darkness in the heavens above, giving no light. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So we have no man. Then we have a very interesting statement in Jeremiah where it says, the fruitful land has become a desert. So there's a lot of very interesting and powerful things being uh, compared here with Jeremiah in the language to Genesis, giving us a much broader and fuller understanding of what's taking place. So the fruitful land obviously has become a desert comment that we read uh, in Jeremiah 4, and that was in, um, I'm just looking for the exact verse here. Verse 26, I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness, a desert, and the cities were pulled down. So we have a very interesting uh, depiction here for the fruitful land has become a desert, is a depiction of the covenant body. This should remind us uh, of Adam and Genesis 1, because Adam, he was picked up from the dust and brought into and placed into a garden with all the fruit. And we read in Genesis 1, the dry land, the dust comes up out of the waters, and then we get the trees of fruit being, being grown on it. So it's very interesting because the picture we have here with Jeremiah is taking that same language, except it's backwards, saying this fruitful land, this people who had been picked up and put into the land with God, has become a desert, a wilderness. Which So that's a depiction, a picture of a covenant body that was once in right good standing, which was fruitful before God, but now has become bad and wrong in, in their standing towards God. They've become fruitless and barren. They've become a desert, a wilderness. They've become void. And then it follows that up with saying, so we have the void. I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness. It had become void and its cities were pulled down and its cities were pulled down. It became unformed and the whole land was a desolation, a complete destruction. Well, that's familiar language that we're all familiar with because it's such a big statement of the abomination of desolation association to Matthew that Jesus makes in Matthew 23 when he says to you, your house will be left to you desolate. And here we have uh, the exact same language being used in Jeremiah saying that this will become to a full desolation. Now what's also interesting is the statement, for the earth shall mourn and the heaven above be dark. So in verse 28, uh, Jeremiah talking about now we're looking at the earth was uh the earth was formless and void, and the heavens had no light. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. Well, that's very interesting. The earth shall mourn, and the heavens above shall be dark. When we take a look at Matthew 24, verse 29, we read, 
The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and stars will fall from the sky or fall from heaven. This is Jesus telling the apostles about the destruction that is coming upon Jerusalem, which Jeremiah is prophesying about. So Jeremiah is actually saying that the heavens above will be dark and the earth shall mourn. And Jesus is saying, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars shall fall from heaven. The sky will be dark, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Well, that's just what Jeremiah says. All the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. Well, that's what we also read in, Jer in Genesis 1, when it says what? It says, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The darkness that was over, that was the sky above. There was no sun, moon, or stars. Because just like Jeremiah said, just like Jesus said, the sun, moon, and stars had fallen from the sky. It had become dark in the midst of judgment. We have the ruins. We have the people wiped out. We have the sun, moon, and stars falling. The exact same language Jesus used to describe the judgment upon Jerusalem. We see he, taking, he takes and lines up exactly from Jeremiah which gives us a great interesting context overlap to the situation again we read in Genesis 1, picking up a very similar position, for the earth was formless, it was destroyed, and it was void, it had no man. And the darkness came from the heaven above, there was no sun, moon, or light to shine and give light upon the earth, so the earth mourned. So for those of you who didn't really go through uh, the last video or found that information overwhelming, I hope that review helped a little bit. Before we move on, I went over a lot of data there and I said a lot of things. I know some of this, most of this data is a lot is new for you guys uh, here joining me today. So I'll just open that up. We have Jeremiah 3 through 7. We've got the destroyer coming along, God declaring destruction to make waste. He says in uh, three through seven, he promises right through there, I'm going to get rid of what? I'm going to, men of Judah and Jerusalem, my wrath goes out, and he's going to destroy them. He's going to make them a waste. Where do we read that? In verse seven, he has gone out from his place to make your land a waste, to make your cities a ruin without inhabitant, to make them unformed and unfilled. Then when we take that and compare it to the covenant apostate Israel, Jerusalem, Judah, and the judgment and the language used, duplicated by Jesus. There's a lot of conversation here, so I will open the door. What would you guys like to uh, throw on to that? Uh, I know last week we uh, brought this up, so any thoughts, any any ideas? What would you guys uh, like to put in? That's a lot of stone faces going, I'm not too sure what to say, so I'll pick on you, Tom. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a lot, man. I mean, it it's it's really wild though, because I mean, it just goes to show that the Bible. I mean, it's it's kind of one story that just carries carries that same line all the way through. Um, <clears throat> one thing that I that I was looking at and noticed is in uh, Jeremiah four, and I think it's where is it twenty seven? Yeah, it. it you know, it, it says this, this is what the Lord said, the version I'm reading from. It says the whole land will be 
be ruined, but I will not destroy it completely. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I don't, I don't know if we can maybe touch on that a little bit too, just, to, yeah, I think that's what, a what beautiful expression. Maybe of, referring to. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful expression of the remnant. Is that how you read it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I was thinking is it's, uh, you know, God's, God's grace and, and mercy, uh, poured out towards, towards those that, that, uh, that love him, that are, that are his remnant. Yeah. Well, that goes along with, we just read in Jeremiah three, uh, last week, how there's a whole section there starting in uh, verse 11, where God invites, uh, repentance too. So I do think that that's, uh, part of this understanding, which is interesting because that's what we see next taking place in Genesis as well as now that the darkness is here, what's, how does God deal with it? The very first thing God does after the darkness is described, it says, let there be light. So yeah, absolutely. There's that constant and we haven't le leaned into it too hard, but whenever there's a judgment going on and the destruction of something, there's always at the exact same time a salvation and a new beginning taking place at the exact same time. If you've ever heard of the legend of the Phoenix, there's truth to the idea that at the death of one thing, the birth and life of another begins. And we can see that pattern in God's judgment in the Bible, as we also see with Jesus when he comes with the end of Israel, natural, national Israel coming to an end and Torah law judgment being poured out upon them. Uh, at Jesus's coming with the parousia, at that moment, the salvation was secured and made for those who had trusted in him at his uh, resurrection, at that preaching of his name during the time period of Acts. So you do have a salvation event at the exact same time building a new body while the destruction of the old was being poured out simultaneously. We see this everywhere in scripture with Lot leaving the destruction, God pulling the Lot remnant out of Sodom. It's just over and over again, even all the way with where we're going to lead to with this conversation, Noah being pulled out of the Eden judgment. It's God's modus operandi. And we see that all the way back in that reference here with Jeremiah, but all the way back to Genesis 1, where if this is speaking in the light of some kind of judgment, and we find now as a result of God's judgment, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and God was moving. Then God said, let there be light. So right after a judgment, let there be light. God starts dealing with the darkness. So yeah, that'll be exciting to get into, into the restitution side of this context. Absolutely. Cool. Cool. Cool points, Tom. Does anyone else want to go, go, go for it? Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, it's kind of like a, a beauty from ashes type, type uh, event. What do you mean? Well, you know, when, when you're talking about destruction and uh, you know, wh exactly what you were just talking about, you know, that, that a new birth takes place. And so, um, you know, something beautiful comes from uh, or is pulled from, something that else was destroyed so absolutely we read uh from paul talking about that transition in the new uh testament time period there in the time period of acts uh when he talks about how uh, light was shining out of darkness as jesus was spreading the, the message of god so yeah it, absolutely it's it's pretty cool uh, Leith, Steve, did you have anything that we wanted to uh, dwell on here with Jeremiah? I know, Steve, you weren't here last week, so 
some of this might just seem uh, going like light speed over it. But we are uh, reviewing some stuff here, and if some stuff had jumped out that you might want to hit, absolutely uh, feel free to bring up. Uh, Leith, did you have anything, Steve? Feel free. Uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just taking it in because you know it's it's a little overwhelming, I guess, just thinking through it all and trying to figure out what it means. And history repeats, his story repeats, and it just keeps playing in my head. And just hmm. Yeah, so when we uh, take a look at that, I agree, and I think that's what we're watching is that repetition, and I, I think that's a big, powerful learning tool from the Bible, especially that precedence of word usage that we kind of went over with that whole let the Bible explain and define the Bible under its own word usage, its own terms, like Luther, Martin Luther said, right, let the Bible interpret the Bible, Scripture interpret Scripture. Cool, what about you, Leith? Do you have anything that you'd like to add before we move on? Uh, yes, sir. Thank you um, for this study again. Uh, I'm so excited that that uh, we can look Genesis one, those first couple of verses in a new light by being able to compare them to places like Matthew and Jeremiah. And I'm pretty sure you have a lot more under your belt that you want to share <laughs> in the future. But um, but it's just so exciting. One question that I had, Dallas, was so um, since Tom did bring that up about the idea that we have a, a destruction that happened um, and that there's a sal salvation hope or a salvation promise. When, since we're seeing all this common language in all these other places with Genesis, when you look at Genesis, do you see, um, the, the, do you see a picture of the world having undergone a judgment and that's why we find itself in a void at this point or or are you are you leaning more towards that that um there had been a judgment before adam or before genesis and then we're, we're looking at the new beginnings or do you see it as something else well if we were to take that in light of like so we're taking a look at Jeremiah, and I'd have to say that because of the language that we see in Jeremiah here, it's obvious from Jeremiah 4, and we read from 2 to 4, so I'll reference all of 2 to 4. I think it's quite clear that we have a covenant nation that broke covenant, and by those deeds they had become apostate, which had put them into the judgment, death, curse situation promised in the agreement they made. As a result of that, the language that we read being used to describe their, the walking out of those transgressions, that punishment, that language is absolutely being duplicated in Jeremiah in, in Genesis 1. That tends to tell me that we are either reading a similar prophecy or we're reading uh, kind of like a common understanding amongst the, the writers of the time. Like, I, I don't think that uh, if you were Jeremiah and you were to look back at Genesis 1, you could extrapolate what he's doing to just look at Genesis 1 on its own and say, oh, I know what that means. But if we take a look at the, you know, the, the culmination of this data all the way from what you know, eventually played out from what Jeremiah was saying, we see Jesus applying the language in a certain way to a you know, an apostate covenant people, Jeremiah's language being used to describe that. 
we see that language also being used to describe this event in Genesis 1. So that gets me to start to think that this also in Genesis 1 might be a prophecy in the same manner as Jeremiah describing the position, however, on the opposite side of Jeremiah, the coming out of it. So there was a prophecy of this coming. So just like we read with Jeremiah, we read up to there was this coming judgment upon Jerusalem, but it had hints of this remnant. That's what I think we're starting to see in this language as we continue into Genesis 1, that that might also be duplicating that language, that this pro that Genesis 1 was a prophecy given to a people of a coming judgment against them, but then also a follow-up restitution. So something along those lines, I, I think with just the language that we're seeing so far, we can start to look at those kind of ideas. And I know that might rub people the wrong way who might want to see this as a literal creation of natural or physical universe, all these kind of ideas. However, the language that we're seeing used in the Bible, I think, is pushing me towards seeing that this language can clearly be used as a prophecy before Adam, talking about the coming of Adam. It could be some kind of standalone prophecy. It could be used in a lot of different ways once we realize that if this is prophetic covenant language used for legal purposes like we see with Jeremiah and then we see with Jesus. And now we're going to go and compare with Noah. I think we're going to start seeing a preponderance of biblical repetition and patterns like Steve was just talking about, see it over and over and over again. I think we're going to be pushed into a position. Does that kind of answer your question? Because I don't think that I want to say that this is the way it is but I think we're being pushed into it by the actual data. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. And I like how you just wrapped that up because, because it's like, wow, we are seeing these parallels. We are seeing this language used multiple times. And so I like how you said it's pushing us to have to explore um, how, what, what that might mean. So yeah, that's cool. Thanks. Awesome. So what I think we'll do is start introducing then uh, some Genesis uh, 6 here. And so just to kind of give us this reminder, Jeremiah, talking about a covenant people who had become apostate, used the language of judgment, sending out a destroyer, going to destroy the land, going to make you uh, fruit. Uh, going to make you unformed and void, going to lay your cities waste, going to destroy the population. We're going to then also wipe out and make desolate the land. We got to understand that the land is a very powerful thing. We were talking about people who lived, you know, 4,000 years ago to the timeline, you know, around with uh, Adam at this story being around Adam's time. But we also go and take a look at Jeremiah's time, which, you know, is still, you know, 3,000 years ago, you know, 3,500 years ago, where where you live, the actual physical land and its ability to produce food was the, the vital structures of society. And again, we, we get so, so used to being able to go to the store and just pick up whatever we want, we forget that these religions literally revolved around the cycles of the just the, the calendar, the harvest times. That's why the Bible's all about the harvest times, celebrating the spring and the, the festivals. They were celebrating all the different equinoxes. Why? Because 
it was all about farming and agriculture and that's how you built the body of your your people to make them bigger so whether or not your land was being blessed or whether you were even kicked off your land by some other warring people like these, these are big deals and when your god is responsible for securing your land and keeping you safe is now saying to you i'm going to come and destroy your land and remove you from it well that's taking away every single thing it is that you have so this is a very powerful language when we, we see the land and we today might take it for granted who can pick up and move and go anywhere we want in the world where we're talking about a time where people couldn't pick up and move and go anywhere because if they planted somewhere where there wasn't water, they were dead. They have a very different experience than we do. So I'm just pointing out why this is so important, why this land, these land promises, why fruitful land is better than the barren desert land. We're talking about a desert nomadic people whose life depended on avoiding floods, whose lives depended on whether or not God was going to bring upon a sandstorm upon them. We got to understand that these people, they see God working amongst their, their tribes in, in nature, in the power of God, in those storms. That's the hurricanes. They see God's power to be able to control those things and even the rise and fall of nations. And by taking all that language and bringing it together, we, we got to bring the importance back to a people when their God again says to them, I'm going to destroy and lay waste and make desolate your land. It will no longer be fruitful, but it will be a desert. Because this is also talking about their spiritual lives with God as well. They will be left victim out in the wilderness where any enemy can use and slave or destroy them as they saw fit. When you're outside the presence of God, nothing to protect you. So there's a lot of ideas and doctrine and heavy day-to-day -day life all wrapped into this. So when we read the prophecy of Jeremiah over the covenant people, like this is a very big deal. And for him to say that the result of this judgment was to be the earth being formless and void and the, sky, the heavens having no light. And then Jesus confirming that language, saying that that judgment is what's happening over Israel and over Judah and Jerusalem, that that's what was taking place. And we see that exact same thing taking place in Genesis 1. So far, all associated with judgment, starting to give us this context. But now we're going to move over and compare another judgment scenario in Genesis 6 and the judgment of Eden. So I hope you guys got your Bibles with you. As we move this conversation, we're just going to knock the door open a little bit to compare the flavor of this judgment cycle. All right, so Genesis 6, 11 through 13. You guys all ready for this? <laughs> yeah, we're ready. We're ready. Yep, we're yeah. ready. Let's rock and roll. Okay, so now we're going to be comparing. We've seen judgment language and all that that we saw with Jeremiah, Jesus supporting it. Now we're going to take a look at this judgment language on Eden. Verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, where it reads, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. This is a pretty powerful, uh, repetitious word. you got to understand that like 
the painstaking amount of resources it takes to write these documents at this time period. And for this person to take this extreme amount of effort to say in this stanza, we have 11, 12, 13, in those three verses, that the earth was corrupt and it was filled, and the earth, it was corrupt, and all the earth was corrupted in 13 for the end of all flesh. Why? Because the earth was filled with, with violence. They repeated it multiple, multiple times. What we get here is this picture of that land judgment again, the earth. And why? Because of corruption. What did we just read in Jeremiah? It said because of their deeds, they had become evil. And just for an interesting sake of discussion, we're going to do a quick refresher in that Jeremiah, just to the, the charge that is described against the people is in verse 22, Jeremiah 4, 22, where it says, For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but how to do good, they know not. And here we have the description given to Eden and the land people, the people of the earth. They had become corrupt, and the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. So we have the same picture and accusation of God and the same coming determining as what? Well, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. And the exact same judgment upon Eden was determined for Israel with Jeremiah. So we, we got judgment just as we see with Jeremiah. We have the promise of the people who have gone apostate just like Jeremiah and the judgment is a land judgment, just like Jeremiah. And this is going to bring what? The destruction and the removal of the people. So we're going to see void. I'm going to destroy the people. He's going to make them void. That's very interesting. Why? Because the earth was filled with violence. Filled is the opposite of void. So when something is filled with violence, filled with corruption, filled with violence, that's very interesting. He's going to now make it void. So we got this very parallel opposition language describing to us the, the folly and the, the situation. The earth is filled with violence, the opposite of void. All flesh is corrupted their way, the same as Jeremiah, and destruction is determined on all the living to make the earth void. So before we move on, did you guys have any comments towards this section in Genesis 6? And I know there's a lot of juicy stuff in Genesis 6, but if we can stay to this section, that'd be great. I don't. Nope. <laughs> yeah, it looks like um, in this Genesis 6, it, it does remind me of that Jeremiah part that talks about the corruption. So seeing that parallel there is pretty cool and how he's calling out uh, – that this is going to happen. I like how it said the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. And and like you said, Dallas, it re and I'm sorry, Letha, you just cut out there uh, when you said uh, uh, you were just about making your point. You cut out, if you wouldn't mind restating it. Um, I like how it repeats it. Um, it says the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. And then in 12, God looked at it and it was corrupt. <laughs> I like how it repeated. And you're saying, do you think that that repetition is, is to 
to um, to make a stronger point? Is that typical of that type of language at the time, or what? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what's neat about uh, Hebrew? They didn't use language and words like we do. Like, boy, that's super duper, or you know, that's fantastically amazing. We like we we talk like that. We're very expressive. Hebrew isn't like that. What they do instead is they repeat stuff to give it emphasis. So, for example, like when they're talking about like holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So we get into that day, that three, that number three and that repetition. And that's what we actually see here is the three repetition as well. Because three is a very, very uh, important number in the numerological world at that time. So there is definitely reasons why it's happening. And there's a reason why they would take the time to imprint this upon their reader. Because the reader would be looking for those symbols, if that makes sense. Does that answer your question? Got, yeah, got you. Thank you. Thanks for that. Awesome. Tom, did you have anything that you wanted to add in there? No, not really. I mean, uh, you guys look sound like you pretty much covered it. But, uh, yeah, just to back up what, what you were saying there, that, that um, anytime you do see repetition, uh, you know, in, in the Bible or in the scriptures, I mean, it is for emphasis purposes. So uh, you, you hit the hit the nail on the head with that one. What do you think about uh, comparison-wise with Jeremiah? Do you see it that being the same type of language, the earth filled with violence, the opposite of void, the flesh is corrupted, same as oh, Jeremiah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a, a, a parallel there with, with Jeremiah and, and similar language. And, and I, I think we're just going to kind of see that uh, throughout our journey here. Cool. So uh, the nice thing is, I don't think oh, I think what you guys are saying is that uh, I'm not just making something up. I think we do see uh, the breadcrumbs here. They're very, very much along the same path. And I'm also going to make a neat uh, jump here into Second Peter and uh, Matthew as well, because what we see in Genesis is interesting, and the language used by Peter and Matthew uh, also brings some things to mind. So. With Genesis 6, 11 through 13, we get the earth is filled with violence. All flesh is corrupted their way. Destruction is determined. Well, in 2 Peter chapter 1, 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance uh, from which is this uh, corrupted and undefiled. Uh, I don't have the version, unfortunately. I have the NASB, and I should have looked at that beforehand. Darn it. Uh, if someone could look up the ESV, I do believe, and then we could give a quick look at that, Second Peter 1, 3 through 4, where it talks, and it's got Peter saying that his people had become corrupt as well. Oh, wait. No, I'm just reading the wrong one. I'm reading First Peter. That's my mistake. Let me just jump over here. <laughs> There's the joy of physical. Okay, let's try that again. Let's go Second Peter 1, 3 through 4, where it says, For by these he has granted us his per, uh, precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So here we have Peter talking to the people that 
are being saved at the time of the destruction, just as we see here we have Noah being saved at the time of the destruction of Eden, and God says to Noah, it's because all flesh has corrupted their way. And here's Peter saying to his people who are being saved at the final moment, saying, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted us, what? To be partakers of the divine nature by having escaped the corruption that was in that world. So here we have Peter saying that his time of judgment that was going on at his current time was a time of corruption and that that was the reason for the judgment coming upon them, which is also very interesting because when we compare that to Matthew 23, 37, well, what he's doing is he's, he's talking from his teacher, Jesus, for Jesus said, for as were the days of Noah, so shall be the coming of the son of man. And here's Peter saying, we're living in the times of corruption and God's judgment is upon us. Which is interesting because Daniel 9.26 talking about when the Messiah would come and judgment would be upon them and the end of Jerusalem would be, it said, after the Messiah will be cut off, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war and desolations are determined. So it's a very interesting language being used in Genesis 6, 11 through 13, because if the whole earth is filled with corruption, and as a result of that corruption, they have been made found guilty, and the judgment of destruction is coming upon them. Peter says they've been saved in their time period from a time of corruption. Matthew says their time would be like the time of the coming of Noah. And that's exactly what Peter just described. Even Daniel said it would be a time of a flood. So we have a very interesting overlap again in the language of judgment leading up to some kind of judgment event. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I was just going to say that's that's wild. I mean, because it's, it's literally the same type of language, um, you know, and, and talking about the flood. Well, what is the flood? The flood uh, appears to be uh, a destruction, a complete destruction. Even specifically the words desolation. That, that's what I find very interesting and very specific as they go out of their way to use that Jeremiah desolation word as well. So we yeah, see that hundred percent. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. But uh, yeah, so uh, Leith, Steve, did you have anything you kind of want to comment in there as we see an interesting parallel between the time of the judgment language of Jesus and the uh, apostles that were prophesied also by Daniel to seem to correspond exactly to what we see with language in Genesis 6 with the judgment of Eden with Noah? I mean, am I just reading this right? Because, you know, I saw, I think it was Jeremiah, they were talking about corruption like they're all they keep talking about corruption but then they go to like a sub level of or subcategory of corruption like with violence and of with lust is there like other references to corruption and you know being destroyed and maybe i don't know some other 
sin or whatever. I don't know, some other bad thing. Like it's corruption, but there's like, there's too much of, you know, too much violence here. So that's why it's being destroyed. Now there's too much lust and all this nonsense going on here. There's too much, you know, I don't know. This seems to be like this. Maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but. No, I think you're making a really good point because what this corruption is always being asso associated to, and I think you rightly pointed out, transgression of Torah covenant. I totally agree with you. So we actually see, and you're, you're being that smart guy who's jumping ahead, what we're seeing in common with all of this language amongst all these examples, it's law transgression that's causing all of this. So, yeah, absolutely. I think your point's bang on there, Steve. I think it's great input. Thank you very much for that. What about you, Leith? Did you have anything that you would like to add into there before we move on? I'm talking about that combination yeah. looking forward. Yeah, um, corruption and, yeah, desolation, corruption, flood, all, all these weird judgment terms. And then Jeremiah 4, I'm, um, you said it earlier on verse 22, foolish, silly, foolish people, silly people. Um, I think some verse, versions say stupid, <laughs> stupid kids, <laughs> um, no understanding. And then in, in verse 23, it wraps all, what all of that means. It was without form and void, <laughs> no light. So the corruption, no more light. Um, pretty cool, pretty interesting. So with this too, what we're going to find interesting as we move forward is now that we're getting a, a much better handle on this judgment language, on this destructive language upon apostate people, we're going to see it play out here with Noah just as we kind of see it playing out in Acts, although they were still waiting for it kind of a little bit far off. And what we see is when we jump up to Genesis 7, uh, 11, we're going to read, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the, sixth, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the deep opened, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So it's very interesting that here we have the great deep being opened. The reason why I bring that up is because when we read Genesis 1, what do we read? The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And what's happening? Judgment is coming upon Eden. And how is it? that the fountains of the deep were opened. Then we keep reading, and what do we get? Genesis 7.22 telling us, finally, and we'll jump to verse 21, all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind, and all that was on the dry land. Here it's a land judgment. And all that was on the dry land all in whose nostrils was the breath of life of the spirit died. So here we have a complete destruction. What do we have? We have the promise. We have earth is filled with violence. All flesh is corrupted. Destruction on all the living earth made void. That's exactly what we hear with Jeremiah. Then we hear this is what's coming upon Israel as what? A flood, the same as the days of Noah. 
Peter talking about the corruption. It's all duplicating. And what do we see? We see a flood coming upon Eden. So we see that duplication, and we actually see the deep open and wash all this away. All right, let's now move because we have a very interesting situation because we have Eden, which is now made void. There is now no man. And it's unformed. It's destroyed. It's been washed away. In fact, it goes on to say that, uh, that the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and increased and lifted it all upon the earth, so that the water prevailed increased greatly upon the earth so that nothing even... The water prevailed more upon the earth so that even the high mountains, all the rival, uh, I'm going to have to make a, a caveat here. Mountains are often used by uh, ancient religions, especially of the Middle Eastern, to represent gods and belief systems and structures. The temples were all built on mountains. That's why Moses met God on a mountain. That's why the salt, that's why Herod's temple was built on Mount. Mora, Moriah, Moria, however you want to pronounce it. That's why ancient Mesopotamian temples were built on ziggurats, because out in the middle of the plains there wasn't any mountains, so they built a mountain called a ziggurat, and they put a temple on top where the gods dwelt. So when it talks about the water prevailing more, more on the earth so that all the high mountains under the heavens were covered, we have this picture of a complete destruction. Everything was washed away. All the great mountains just as we read where Jesus says, you will be, say, say to this mountain, pick it up and throw it into the sea. Well, we just saw the great mountain of Eden being picked up and thrown into the sea. And what do we get? A complete destruction. They were made unformed. They were made void. Nothing was left. Eden's earth was the exact result of what? If we were to read Jeremiah's prophecy against Israel, the exact same prophecy could be used against Eden in every way. So it's a very interesting way for us to start understanding this language. For Eden's earth was made unformed, and the land of Eden was made void because the people were corrupted. Just as Israel in 70 AD, Israel's earth was made. The land of Israel was made unformed. The land of Israel was made void because the people of Israel was corrupt. So why do we not take those and associate those? I think we should, and I think we have to. And that goes into that, we're now starting to be forced into this position because this repetition is just too strong. The narrative uh, duplication, the similar language structure, and the actual walking out of the events. So even historically and theologically, these things are playing out on the same basis so when we see the destruction we do see a lot of that same stuff playing out so uh did you guys want to say anything to genesis 7 where we do see the floodgates the deep has been opened and now that the deep is opened we have the destruction of all the breath of life and we are now seeing void unformed eden I see a lot of deep thinking going on. So I think maybe what we'll do is we'll keep going because I think it's very interesting. Unless some of you guys, one of you guys has something pressing you want to see, uh, we can keep this uh, idea going and open up one more can of worms before we shut her down for today. What do you think?
Yeah, let's keep going because I'm I'm yep. I'm just keep, listening. Keep I kind of lost rolling. a little, but yeah, I'm getting it all. I'm <laughs> just trying to think about it. <laughs> all right, cool. So we'll keep going. So what's the result of this judgment? Well, just like Israel, we saw uh, the nation of Rome come in that played its role as a flood and wiped out the people of Israel. And here we see a flood coming in and wiping out the people of Eden. Well, now we're in an interesting situation because we had a promise in Genesis 6 given to Noah. So if we take a read, we have uh, Genesis 6, verse 9, uh, or verse 8, where it said, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records and generation of Noah. For Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. Walked with God is talking about a covenant. And we, we can read in Genesis 7 that God promised to make his covenant also with uh, the children of Noah and Noah himself. And also uh, in Genesis 6, I do believe also the covenant is promised as well. Just scanning here. And anyway, we have God making the covenant with Noah and his children. So when this flood subsides and the destruction on Eden is ended, we have Noah being pulled out of this destruction at the time of its being destroyed and taking with him a remnant. And then with that remnant, they waited out this flood. Now we're going to go and take a look at Genesis 8 and 8.1. Uh, and we're going to compare that also to Genesis 1 because some of this language is very interesting. Now, before we do that, we need to take a look at a Hebrew word. If, you, uh, if you're geeky and you like doing this stuff like I am, you're going to want to take uh, the Strong's number 7307, 7307. It's the word ruach. It's the word wind, spirit, and breath. It's a Hebrew word that... All three of those English words were translated out of. So the word ruach, the 7307 of Strong's, is translated into the word wind, into the word spirit, and into the word breath. Why am I bringing that up? It's because when we read Genesis 8, this is what we find. It says, Genesis 8, 1 through 3 is what I'm going to read, I think. So, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him on the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Well, let's stop there for a second. Well, that's very interesting. So here we have Eden is now formless and void, and it's underwater. So God remembers his promise to Noah and says, and, and doesn't say anything, but God caused a wind to pass over the water, and the water subsided, a wind passed over the earth. Well, that's interesting because it says, and God caused a wind. That is the word ruach. That is the word that is also translated into the word spirit and breath. That is also the word that is translated in Genesis 1-2 when it says, and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. It's the word ruach. So for a fun little experiment, Let's give this a read. It says, and we're going to bring in the context of Genesis 8.1. So, and Eden was formless and void, and darkness was upon the people. But God remembered Noah and the beasts and all the cattle that were with them, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Genesis 1. 
in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And, the, and God caused a wind to move over the surface of the waters. If we translate Ruah in eight, Genesis 8-1 and in Genesis 1-2, they mean exactly the same thing, that a destruction had taken place, there was nothing there except the remnants of the flood judgment water, so God caused a wind to come and blow the water off. Genesis 8-2, it says, and the fountains of the deep were closed. Well, what does Genesis 1-2 say? The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the deep. Very interesting language. The fountains of the deep were closed. So what we're seeing is the same thing, but just in different stages. As it continues, and the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain of the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days the water decreased. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. Then it came about that, uh, then we're going to skip down to verse 13. Now it came about in the 600th. And first year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. So Genesis 8, 1, 2, 3, and verse 13, we get God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided, the deep closed, and the water receded steadily, and the water dried up from the earth. Then Noah looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. What do we get in Genesis 1? We get and the earth was formless and void, and God caused a wind, or the spirit was moving over the surface of the waters. I'm going to read it in the spirit of wind. So, and the earth was formless and void, and the wind of God moved over the surface of the waters. Verse 9 through 10, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And God called the dry land earth. Genesis 1 starts with the destruction of some people, underwater, and a wind moving across the water, which leads to the revealing of dry land. Genesis 8.1, we're at the destruction of a people who are covered in floodwaters, and God's causing a wind to cover the, and move the water off so that dry land appears. So we can clearly see God, whom after causing a flood over Eden, caused a wind to dry off the earth, because Eden had corrupted all the earth under Adam's royal line. Well, that's exactly the charge Israel was given from Jeremiah. That's exactly what plays out in Eden. And the same exact language all duplicates what we see in Genesis 1. And when we put in and apply the understanding that the word spirit and the word wind are literally exactly the same word, it clears up all this context. So before we go any deeper into that, uh, I don't think we want to go any further than those points. I think that's a lot of cool stuff to discuss. What do you guys think about as we move forward past the judgment 
that was proclaimed over the corrupt people of Eden to the judgment came and made the place void, made it unformed. There was no man. There was darkness. Then what happened? Then God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. The deep closed and the dry land appeared. If we read Genesis 1 in that same breath, we do see a destroyed society in which there was a water covering everything, in which the wind was brought in by God in order to move the waters off onto one side in order for dry land to appear. Is it just me, or is that not exactly the same thing? Yeah, my mind is like totally blown on that one. That is so good, and... You know, this is stuff that we've read a million times. <laughs> we've read this. No, I love it. That's what times. I wanted to hear. <laughs> and 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 I've never ever ever tried to put those two together ever, and I've never heard it before either. Yeah, yeah. Um, Th this is this is where you insert the mind blowing GIF. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and so so this is the first time where that because. For the last couple of podcasts, you've been asking us, it, what are the chances that this Genesis, you know, these couple first verses in Genesis is a prophecy of something? And I, and I just couldn't grasp what you were talking about. And it's just making a ton of sense now. Genesis 1, whether it's like a template prophecy or whether, whether it is the prophecy for multiple things, or even if it's just the prophecy for the flood. I mean, you see it right there. I love it. Keep it going, guys. I, I, I want to see what, what gets the brain going. Tom, you're on, on the end of the day. Jump on in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, I don't think you can dispute the similarities between Genesis 1, 2, and then what what we're reading in eight eight one as well i mean it's it's obvious that uh i mean that it, it, it's almost identical um because the same words are used there so yeah it's not uh, almost identical it's almost literally the same right yeah almost almost yeah exactly <laughs> yeah and Sorry. then when the water uh, recedes away from the earth you know, I, you could see that as you know, he parts the waters and the dry land, and he and the dry land appears in Genesis one. That's kind of the same, all the same language there, um, which is pretty which exciting. Is interesting because then we get Adam, who's brought out of dust, out of the dry land. So it, yeah. it cracks all that language that we already kind of went over with. When we're looking at humans before Adam, let's let's pull this context of these building blocks that we've been talking about. If there are humans before Adam, did these humans before Adam were they covenant or non-covenant? Well, I think at this point, with the study we see of the language of the dust, the language we see with the covenant usage of Eden and all these kind of things with Genesis one, it's obviously talking about a covenant language. If we are to remain consistent in the language use. So I, I think in the vein of humans before Adam, we do see Genesis 1 being used as a prophecy. And, it, and I'm going to suggest that it's a prophecy telling about the coming of Adam. 
And that it's that prophecy that told that people that there was a judgment coming. And that judgment wiped out whoever that people were, and Adam came out from that previous people. Genesis 1 would be the prophecy of a former prophet before Adam, before Adam was alive. So there's an interesting, right? Because Jeremiah was prophesying about the destruction of the coming of Israel. Well, someone would have had to prophesy about the coming of the people of dust that Adam was pulled out of. Because right. yeah. did that make sense there? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense because uh, you have, yeah, you have a prophet writing every time about something that's coming, whatever prophecy is that you see in the Bible about destruction. So it would make sense that the that it, that that could be a prophecy of the coming. We don't know who wrote it, but but let's just say Moses was reiterating it, reiterating it, you know. Well, there's definitely a reason why Moses chose to use it. And we'll, we're going to get into that as this uh, study progresses. So I'm glad you're thinking of that because then we've got to start asking those important questions. Well, if this was a specific prophecy, why was it even put in there? And then I also think we can't skip over the repetition of the dust because here we have Israel who was raised out of the dust, right? The Valley of Dry Bones. They were resurrected out of the dust. Jesus was the new dust people. Then we have uh, Noah coming out of the dry land. He's the new dust people after Eden. Then here we have Adam who's coming out of another dust people. So whoever those dust people were before, just like Noah received knowledge about a coming destruction and gathered a remnant, just as Jesus knew about the coming destruction and grabbed a remnant, Adam heard about a coming destruction and grabbed a remnant. And who was that? How did he hear about it? Genesis 1, by a prophet that came before the destruction of that dust people. Does that make sense? Or is that completely off base? I think this information that we've been going over from the beginning of humans before Adam up to this moment, this information forces us into at least finding out if we can disprove that concept. Like, I think it's established enough that it has to be dealt with. What do you guys think? No, that's, I mean, that's a very fair way to put it, I think. <laughs> it's, uh, it, that there's too much to have to sort out with just those verses. It has to be dealt with. It's not something that we can pass up and be like, and call it coincidence. Now, I'm one for who, like, I, I love interesting things, and I love, there's a, a really cool debate about the authorship of the Gospel of John. Could it be uh, Lazarus, uh, who was a priest, who brought a lot of very interesting things to the table in that conversation? The problem with that conversation, as cool and interesting as it is, it doesn't change anything. This kind of conversation, I think, changes things, and that's why it has to be dealt with, is, and I think it is in this presentation, uh, in this style, exceptionally biblically sound and solid that if anyone would just brush it off, we're, we're doing truth a disservice. I'm going to lean on you a little bit here, Tom, because you've probably the most school studied on this and uh, the impact that this would have and that to the, you know, the, the general understanding of Genesis in, in the scholastic world like this is strong enough in that world to be have to be dealt with 
Would you say that's a true statement, or do you think that this is something that still needs to be developed further before it would make a realistic push? I'm biased. I think this is strong enough on its own to be, this has to be dealt with. What do you think, Tom? And the reason why, guys, again, this is Tom, who has a Masters of Divinity, so I'm not just picking on him. Guy <laughs> plays time. He deserves to be picked on. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. No, I mean, <laughs> That's great. This, is, this is absolutely, I mean, I think it's huge. Uh, yeah, and you've got it's got to be, it's got to be dealt with and discussed as as a as a possibility, um, you know. Which which is crazy that here we are, uh, two thousand twenty three, and this is kind of like the first time, you know, that I'm even hearing about it. So. Um, and what's your initial reaction for the first time you're really hearing it? Because it's not willy-nilly. This is obviously, we've talked about it for a few times now. There's a lot of research and understanding gone into this. This isn't just some flippant idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, it's, and and when we, we take a look at the other scriptures with the same similar covenant language, um, yeah, it's it's all, it all kind of makes sense. Uh yeah, so um, one of the things I was so in chapter eight there of Genesis and talking about the waters uh, receding. I mean, is is that kind of what's your take on that as far as like uh, looking at Genesis one and I mean, is is the deep in one the same as what? what's going on here with Noah, you think? Yeah. So the deep, I think is the source of the judgment. So yeah. that would be like, you could think of it like a deep sea monster. Right, right, right. However okay. you want to put it, right. The deep sea, that's the source of the flood. That's the source of the water in Genesis one. The interesting thing is we don't see it poured out. We see it after it's poured out in Genesis mm -hmm. eight. We're right. seeing it already poured out. In Genesis 7, we got to see it pour out. Yep, okay, that makes sense. So the, to me, when I read Genesis 1, we're just reading it at a different time period versus uh, Genesis 7. But it's similar in the time period of Genesis 8, because in Genesis 1, right after we see the wind caused by God to move over the waters, what's, what happens? Day 3 happens, dry land appears. Yep. What happens when God does that in Genesis 8? Then the dry land Same appears. Same thing, yep. So to Absolutely. me, that's restitution. Now we're starting to see salvation and a new people starting to appear, a new dust. So that's what I, does that make sense? That's kind yeah, of what you're it's, talking It's crazy, man. The repetition is undeniable. Now, I know we're pushing up the clock here a little bit at, at a buck ten. And this is a, such a big topic. And I don't want to go any further, and I do have a lot more that we can get into. Uh, and I know it's it's shocking, but I, I think it's clear. And I think that out of all of uh, what we've been coming to, this is a first resting point, so to speak, in the topics we've chosen. So like starting with humans before Adam, then we have, okay, Adam's a new kingdom being brought up, a new people being brought up. He's being put into the Garden of Eden somehow. And then Eden's run into the ground. And then a judgment comes upon them for becoming corrupt. And then that language is duplicated in Genesis 1. That language is duplicated in Jeremiah talking about Jesus and their judgment. And they duplicate the language of Eden. 
They even look back and claim Eden. And Paul says everything that was written, and this is, again, one of those big things that we skip over, because uh, if we don't look at these things in detail, we miss these important words. And Paul says that all the things written about what, so he was quoting out of the, he was talking about the Old uh, Testament saying, everything that was written by the prophets and written in the law happened to them for examples upon those whom the ends of the world was coming upon them. So here Paul is saying, when we read what was going on in Adam in Eden, that was an example of us. This is Paul, the same man who said, here we have Adam, the first Adam, and here we have Jesus, the last Adam. We have a lot of this New Testament reference back to Adam. All of Romans talks about Adam. Jesus himself talks about Adam. Peter talks about Adam. This is a huge deal, and I think we're starting to see why. And we gotta, we got to remember, to the Jew, to the Hebrew, to these people, they had no New Testament. Their Bible started with Adam and ended with Malachi. They had the stuff in between. But to them, they had their revelation and they had their Genesis, just like we stick the New Testament in there. They were so familiar with the start and with Genesis and with Adam, they had their own millions of theories and philosophies. So we got to, you know, when we take a look at these things, this is not a small, tiny, little, simple thing. And that's why maybe we want to slow down and look at this in a little bit more in detail. And, you know, it's why this one conversation we've dragged out into five or six, seven conversations now, eighth conversation, episode eight, because this is a very serious topic and it is very seriously established in this presentation over this time to really establish, you know, show us we got to look at these traditions of men a lot more seriously and just stop taking them because I do think this is right, that there is something we have, whether we're not 100% on it, because let's, let's be fair, like Tom said, and I, I'm acknowledging this isn't something that's common. I, I don't know if I've ever heard it, but I can't deny what we're seeing. And these gentlemen today seem to be saying the same. They can't deny what they're seeing. It's interesting, and it has to be dealt with. And in the grand scheme of things, we, we're not you know, going to sit here and stomp and put our feet down on you know, the history of other people. But let's also remember for 1,500 years since Jesus till the Protestant Reformation, and the doctrine of the church, the tradition of men, was salvation through works. So for 1,500 years, salvation of works was preached through the religion of Christianity. It was only since the uh, Reformation movement that justification through faith came. So for those of you who get a little shaky at some of these heavy, weighty topics because of the changes in the dimension of the worldview, it does create. Remember... For 1,500 years, you would have been hung and killed at the stake for suggesting that Jesus' faith alone was justification. So before we go on, just throw that line in your mind because we are talking about some things that are pushing the borders of the traditions of men very hard that when we do test the traditions of men, we stand in good company. It was Jesus who said to the Pharisees, it's your traditions of men that are wrong. It was the prophets and those who were slayed 
for copying those words of Jesus. And still to this day, it doesn't matter. If you challenge the traditions of men anywhere, it's going to rock some boats. So hopefully we remember any boat rocking done in good, honest, authentic searching of the truth. You're in good company when you're rocking those boats. So, guys, before we shut her down here and move on and get you guys to think for a week on this and take a look at Genesis 8. Oh, yeah, I just want to do the friendly reminder of what we went through today. Just as a uh, summary review was Jeremiah 4, uh, verse 3 up to 28. We went through Genesis 6, uh, where we, 6, 11, 13, in combination with 2 Peter 1, uh, Three through four, Matthew twenty four thirty seven, Daniel nine twenty six. Then into Genesis seven, we ventured into seven eleven and seven twenty two. Moving into Genesis eight and the new beginning, we have Genesis uh, one two and one nine, comparing to Genesis eight one through three thirteen. Read that whole section of eight one through thirteen. It'd be really good to just bring that whole language basis before your eyes. So just throw those scriptures out there, guys, before we shut down any kind of ideas regarding this. I know we are pushing against a hard tradition. And uh, like Tom said, you know, here's a guy. He's probably one of the most school people I get to hang out with. He's This is new to him as well. So any comments about this uh, episode, that'd be great. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys, for this episode. And um, and it's I love taking this information that we talk about and chew on it during the week. And one of my favorite things to do is like before bed, like before I fall asleep or when I wake up, just 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 put these thoughts in a washer and just let them all kind of mix together. And they and then they fall into place with time. It doesn't happen overnight. That's for sure. But um, because what I'm realizing with me is it's it's the, uh, it's all the the traditions like you like you talked about Dallas that have that are so embedded and they're very tough and I don't think it's a bad thing to to break those things up and start fresh and start anew and and really solidify it you know so thanks guys thank you Dallas and hopefully it's biblical enough to keep you busy for the week as you uh, challenge this too because this is a good one because I think if you challenge this and really fight with it, you're, you're going to be impressed as you realize how much more of this language all over it pops up as well. Uh, Steve, Tom, did you have any uh, comments you want to say regarding this? I know, Steve, this is going to be a lot of interesting information you've probably never heard before from anywhere. But you don't have a lot of other baggage to bang that around with. So I'd be interested in your comments as well. So, Tom, Steve, anything to say? Uh, yeah, well, that's that's been my thing is I just try to think, okay, well, I'm listening to you, but if I was listening to somebody else, would I just be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense to me too, but I don't think I would, honestly. This makes sense, and I do feel like if I repeat this, people are just going to attack, and of course, I'm too inexperienced to fight anybody with knowledge with the Bible, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut mainly. <laughs> and just go with the flow with this and just uh, store it and learn and just see where we see where we end up because uh, i'm liking it it definitely makes sense to me and kind of so you're seeing those patterns and they're resonating as obviously to you or like what degree do they seem like they are playing off of each other does it seem obvious or does it seem like i could because i know there's a lot of doctrine out there where it's like i guess i can see where you're going with that like where do you see it? Is it solid or is it kind of weak? 
I feel, I feel like it's I feel like it's really solid, but I feel like I see how people would find a way out of not saying it's solid. You know, I, I could see some hardcore people that have just you know, similar to my wife. I could if I could repeat this to her, she'd probably be like, Oh, you're just making up wind spirit, uh breathe. Oh, that's not the same thing. Where do you come up with this? I could I could see people just finding a way to just dismiss all of this. So it's it's you gotta tread carefully and kind of get the words just right to be like, wait, well, let's slow down here. But it's it's an uphill battle. I can see this. I, I think those are wise words, Steve, to everybody. Is this this is a one of those things where just in general, just talking to anybody to slow down, you mm -hmm. know, not rush into it with the right answers, so to speak, because like like we have the right answers. We were we're all wrong. We're, we're not trying to be right, but there is, and I agree with you, there's resistance to pushing into the things to find out whether it should be right or wrong. So good word there, Steve, the be patient, be, be smart. And I, I think that's wise words. What about you, Tom? It looks like you get final word on uh, what you think about this connection between Genesis one and judgment language, destruction, all that stuff. And a new beginning with the new dust, I guess. Uh, yeah no it's this is this has been great i definitely uh i can i can see uh you know steve made a comment there that you know you, you could see where other people might come in and go yeah this doesn't mean that but uh yeah knowing kind of knowing the the hebrew and the greek and looking at it before i can assure you those words are the same and it's and it's uh, it, it's it's talking about the same thing. I, I like what Leaf had to say too. You know, is he's kind of like I just kind of put all this stuff in a washer, and uh, you know, as soon as he said that about a washing washing machine, I, I, I thought of the soak cycle, right? So you just kind of got got to sit in there and, and soak <laughs> and meditate on these things for a while, because awesome. um, yeah, I mean it, it's it's look look we're 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 challenging the traditions of men and these are uh, uh things that again we're we're in 2023 and um uh, this this is the first that i'm that i'm looking at it this way so um you know it's going to be a, a hard pill for some people to swallow and you know i'm i'm very much a skeptic myself steve so it's 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 uh not easy to to win me over convince me to go one direction or another um but yeah, i think i think, I think dallas i think you're actually one of those playful doubting thomases aren't you you're actually more. <laughs> well I, I i i joke all the time with my parents i'm like man you guys really you know gave me the right name because uh it is thomas and uh and i am a, a doubter of of a lot of things that men say and so um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, that I've just always kind of been a skeptic about. And I, you know, yeah, I want to see, uh, with my eyes and I want to touch with my, with my hands before I just jump right into something and, and go, okay, yeah, this, this is it a hundred percent. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we're doing this because I think it needs to be done. Well, that's cool that you're seeing uh, the value and the weight in this because I agree. Uh, I think this is just too weighty to not deal with. There's too many similarities, too many duplications, too many 
and and it's not like they're kind of they're exactly they're duplicating the exact words scenarios situations befores during's and afters so we're not just talking about well the one time this one guy did this one thing at the no this is talking about entire narrative events so this isn't cherry picking and i'm not going to sit here and try and say i'm right but i am going to say i want to be proven wrong if this isn't right and i'm trying to find out how this view should be discounted and i can't do it in fact the more i look into this and the more i try to allow simply and this is the the hermeneutic that this whole uh, conversation's based off of just trying to find the truth just authentically being truthful and i have to say i'm quite persuaded i can no longer read uh, genesis 1 as any type of account dealing with the creation of the physical universe because that concept just it, it just doesn't make sense that that could be what it's talking about in its own language maybe one day we'll have a conversation about why uh, we don't think it's that way but as you can see i think uh, within these conversations we've definitely given enough information enough direction to see why it should be looked at and in the future episodes coming up we're going to dig even more into this we're going to see what that develops more into the more comparisons as we go further into what is genesis talking about so that we can understand what genesis 1 is talking about why so that we can challenge the traditions of men and lead us to better understand the bible so i want to thank you guys for giving us a listen and uh, we'll see you next week wherever you are Hope this finds you well and God bless.